0: Looking um, into Luke, good news of great joy for all people. And tonight, um, rather pretentiously, maybe the bulletin says you're going to hear a powerful message. Well, now, now, let me qualify that, because this trades descriptions these days. You're going to hear about a powerful message. Okay, so um, let's start there anyway. Let's turn in God's Word, shall we, to Luke's Gospel, chapter 4. And we'll begin reading at verse 31 It's number 1031 on the church Pew Bible to be using these Page 1031 Luke 4 and 31 Then he, that is Jesus, went down to Capernaum A town in Galilee And on the Sabbath began to teach the people They were amazed at his teaching, because his message had authority. In the synagogue, there was a man possessed by a demon, an evil spirit. He cried at the top of his voice, Ha! What do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Be quiet, Jesus said sternly. Come out of him. Then the demon threw the man down before them all and came out without injuring him. All the people were amazed and said to each other, What is this teaching? With authority and power he gives orders to evil spirits and they come out. And the news about him spread throughout the surrounding area. Jesus left the synagogue and went to the home of Simon. Now Simon's mother-in-law was suffering from a high fever. And they asked Jesus to help her. And so he bent over her and rebuked the fever, and it left her. She got up at once and began to wait on them. When the sun was setting, the people brought to Jesus all who had various kinds of sicknesses, and laying his hands on each one, he healed them. Moreover, demons came out of many people shouting, You are the Son of God. But he rebuked them and would not allow them to speak. Because they knew he was the Christ. At daybreak, Jesus went to a solitary place. The people were looking for him. And when they came to where he was, they tried to keep him from leaving them. But he said, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns also. Because that is why I was sent. And he kept on preaching in the synagogues of Judea. Let us pray together, shall we? Heavenly Father, we thank you for that testimony, Luke's account, that he got from eyewitnesses of what Jesus did on that Sabbath day some 2,000 years ago. And Lord, we want not just to be able to know the story, we want to understand its implications for us here and now in this place this evening. And so open the eyes of our heart, Lord. We want to see Jesus. And we ask it in his name. Amen. In introduction, um, Jesus had an amazing style of teaching. Matthew tells us in Matthew 4 and 17 that when Jesus began his public ministry, his preaching centered on the message, repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. Uh, Some years ago I heard um, a very learned scholar uh, tell a group of pastors that when Jesus came, he preached love. He came and the very first thing that he preached about and he continued to preach throughout his earthly ministry was that God loves you. Uh, And he was trying to tell us that we must get away from this place of preaching repentance and calling people to a sense of conviction and shame. Because all God wants to get out there into the message of the world is that he loves people. God just loves people. And if we preach that, then people will respond to that love. And and I took issue with this learned scholar. Um, As you can imagine, I did. I'm sure it says in my Bible that Jesus said, "Repent." No, 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 no. It said, "God, God loves them." I'm not. Well, okay, yeah. But he did. Jesus had this amazing preaching style, despite what this learned man might have thought otherwise. He said, "Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near." And Jesus' approach to preaching was actually quite remarkable. He simply spoke the truth as revealed to him by his Father. We see that in John 7 and verse 16. Jesus answered, My teaching is not my own. It comes from him who sent me. And then further on in that same gospel, at chapter 14 and verse 24, Jesus again says, He who does not love me will not obey my teaching. These words you hear are not my own. They belong to the Father who sent me. Last Sunday, uh, Colin very helpfully, uh, in the same series, considered the focus that Jesus had In maintaining his divine mandate. And tonight we're going to study the effects of Jesus' message. As he continues to proclaim that year of the Lord's favour. Remember back in Nazareth, if you're still open in chapter 4 of Luke's Gospel. You can look back to verses 18 18 and 19. Where Jesus in Nazareth had read from the scroll of the prophet Isaiah saying, The spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to go and preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to release the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Now, I believe with absolute confidence that we can safely assume that Jesus had no change of heart concerning the nature of his mandate. A point that I'm going to conclude with. But there's a little bit in between. As he teaches in the synagogue in Capernaum, he does so with the same anointing of the same Holy Spirit and with the same authority of heaven's divine mandate. And tonight I want to look at three specific realities influenced by Jesus' authority. First of all, we're going to look at Jesus' authority over doctrine. And then secondly, we're going to look at Jesus' authority over demons. And thirdly, we're going to consider Jesus' authority over disease. So first of all, in verses 31 and 32 of our reading tonight, authority over doctrine. What I'm really saying is that Jesus basically is doing the same thing in Capernaum that he did in Nazareth. He taught the people the authentic word of God. We're told that he taught them with authority. And that was something that the rabbis of the day didn't do. The practice of rabbis was simply to say what other rabbis said. And some preaching today amounts to little more than that. It's a kind of collection of things that other preachers or commentators have said. Nothing wrong with doing the research and the study and quoting good sources, but the authority of the word of God comes through the person who's preaching it to the people who receive it. And in Jesus' day, we see that he, of course, was the ultimate authority. Jesus' teaching delivered under the anointing and the power of the Holy Spirit literally impacted the people with that authority that thus saith the Lord. Preachers have to avoid the temptation of simply entertaining their audiences or their congregations. Um, appealing to intellectual power to pander to the whims or the moods of people's emotions Jesus preaching while I imagine was very entertaining and certainly met a need and a mood and and possibly even at times touched on the whims of the people who were listening it wasn't primarily designed for that the motivation of Jesus preaching was not um, to precipitate man's desire but rather that it flowed from an urgency in the heart of God to communicate truth to those who had fallen under demonically inspired influences or human error. And as I read this again, I just got something of the feeling of that. that that's, I believe that's still the case with God. There is an urgency in the heart of God that you and I hear the truth. The truth that sets us free. Not just a truth that we can concur with, not just a truth that we can understand, but a truth that actually impacts our life with the same sort of authority and power as we see happen here, as Jesus teaches in the synagogue. Jesus preached a truth that sets men and women free. And I believe that there is a place to come back to that authenticity of preaching again in the church today. Some people may be struggling to understand the subtle difference between authority and power in this passage. And I don't know whether this is the best illustration. It's the only one I could come up with during the week. Uh, So I'm going to give it to you. And if it's helpful, then that's fine. If it's not, just ignore it. Uh, Let's imagine that a policeman steps out into the traffic and holds his hand up, indicating that he wants the approaching cars to stop. And they comply. Why? Why? Was it his power that did that? Or was it his authority? Well, it was his authority. The highway code familiarizes the driver with the protocols and rules of traveling on the road. The policeman is familiar with the legislation that authorizes him to act in this way, uh, should it be appropriate to do so. But does the policeman really have power to stop the car? Well, it might not be a good idea if the car uh, in question has just been used in a bank robbery. And he steps in front of and goes, you know, in the name of the law, stop, I, I suspect the car isn't going to comply with the authority. Power may be available to him. Maybe he has a stinger or a roadblock or a big missile or something. <laughs> that might do it. But that's the difference, I feel, between authority and power. The policeman has the authority, but he doesn't have the power if someone doesn't want to stop. What I'm saying is that Jesus has both the authority and the power to preach his divinely authenticated doctrine of good news. Now, why was that? Well, we know that he's the Son of God, but remember also that the Spirit of God has descended on him at his baptism, and that according back in verse 14, he returned in the power of the Spirit, into Galilee. The authority that Jesus has to preach the good news is a divine mandate given by God. God has sent Jesus into the world to proclaim this good news, to preach a gospel that includes repentance and turning away from sin and to receive what God gives. But Jesus also has the power to enforce the message, to bring a kind of Authentic backup to make it happen. Let's look at these two words in the original language. The Greek words exousia and dunamis. Authority, really, and and this is my definition by the way, um, it's Jesus' divine right to do this. That's what authority is. But power is Jesus' spiritual ability to accomplish it. Remember after Jesus was rejected in Nazareth, he made his way down to the lakeside town of Capernaum. And we've got a map here showing that route. Um, It's really a tale of two cities, or a tale of two towns, Nazareth and Capernaum, only about 25 miles apart geographically, but they appear to have been an eternity apart spiritually. Jesus taught with authority and with great power in Nazareth. And do you remember... Last week, as Colin brought that word to us, how the people responded to that. Same authority, same power that he teaches with in Capernaum. But in Nazareth, the people rise up and reject his teaching and attempt to do him in by throwing him off a cliff. Yet, preaching with that same authority and power in Capernaum, the response of the people is quite different. We also get an illustration of that from the book of Acts, early on in the Apostles' preaching. Remember how on the day of Pentecost, Peter stands up, preaches this powerful sermon under the anointing of the Spirit, and 3,000 people are added to the church, convicted of their sin, and ask how they might be made right with God. Stephen, only a very short time later, addresses, addresses a similar crowd under the anointing of the same Holy Spirit, is able to deliver an exposition of Old Testament truths that results in his martyrdom. Uh, Colin and I were sort of having a a light bit of brevity about this before we came out tonight and I said you know that the the, the preacher uh, somewhere finds himself between revival and martyrdom always when he preaches Uh, these are the extreme ends of that spectrum you realise somewhere in the middle people respond either enthusiastically or somewhere um, there is resistance to the word of God I think there's a two-pronged message in that for us. And I'm just going to pause and think about these just for a moment. Firstly, note here in the text, there is no mention of Jesus altering his message or style of preaching in Capernaum simply because people didn't respond to it in Nazareth. There's a real danger for us in today's world. The people didn't respond, let's give them what they want to hear. Paul actually says to Timothy that in the latter days that's exactly what's going to happen. Not wanting to put up with sound doctrine any longer that men and women will gather around them simply what their itching ears want to hear and teachers that will say that for them. And so there's a danger for us to note there. Secondly, that it's the effect that the message has in our lives I believe actually has more to do with our receptivity and the condition of our hearts to receive the word than it has to do with the preacher's ability to deliver. Some people, oh, I just love going to Keswick and hearing big name preacher. Well, yeah, most of us like big name preachers. But did we really respond to the word preached by that big name preacher? Any more than we responded to the little name preacher that's hardly ever heard. In the little congregation, in the little church, a way where no one's ever heard about them. It's the receptivity of our heart that's the problem, not the person's ability normally to communicate. So I just ask you in passing then, how receptive are you to the word of God? Well, we really love it when Peter preaches. But see when that Rodney Stout stands up, man, it's a different matter altogether. Do you listen with interest? Do you listen with enthusiasm? Do you pay attention? Do you care? Do you really care? You know, sometimes people get nothing out of God's word because they're not receptive to God's word. Jesus still, as back then, anoints the preaching of his word to authentically have his authority stamped all over it. Jesus' authority over doctrine has determined that the gospel message is the only means whereby a sinful human individual or the whole sinful human race can find salvation. That is forgiveness of sin and peace with God. There is no other name under heaven whereby man can be saved. Jesus is the only way. His gospel is the only power available to us to be saved. Paul says in Romans 1 and 16, I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes, first the Jew and then the Gentile. So what is this gospel? Well, basically, it just means good news. Before Jesus came, the good news was the glad tidings of the kingdom of God soon to be set up and then subsequently also of Jesus coming Messiah, the founder of this kingdom. After the death of Christ, The term good news comprises also the preaching of Jesus and the preaching concerning Jesus Christ as having suffered death on the cross to procure eternal salvation for the men of the kingdom of God. It's a restored life that he has exalted to the right hand of the Father in heaven and that he's coming back one day to claim those who are his believers. That's the good news of Jesus. Peter says in the first chapter of his first letter, In verses 3 to 5, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil or fade, kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. We don't have time to look at that simple gospel presentation message. But it's basically this. Four steps. God created you for relationship with him. Sin gets in the way and it's a universal condition that destroys the relationship between sinful man and the Holy God. God has provided a solution in Jesus Christ in that he has come into the world and died for your sin. And the fourth thing is that you have to respond to that. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Believe that God raised him from the dead. Confess him with your mouth and you will be saved. And I ask you now, maybe you've never ever come through that stage of recognizing that you're made for a purpose to relate to that Holy God. That there's sin in the way. That God has provided an answer in Jesus Christ and that tonight you can become a child of God. If you've never come to that place, I'm going to invite you later on to trust Jesus as Lord and Savior. And for those of you who already know him, maybe you can pray towards that end. That men and women in this place tonight would know Jesus as Lord. That's the gospel. It's the only means that God has. It's the only thing he's ever going to use to bring men and women into the kingdom. This gospel, this good news is the authoritative word of God and has power to save you. Once you respond in trust and faith. Jesus has authority over doctrine. Secondly, Jesus has authority over demons. You see it there in verses 33 through 37. And again in verse 41. Luke tells us that there was a man in the synagogue who was possessed by a demon. Some translations describe this man as having in him a spirit of an unclean devil. Uh, Demon is really a better translation. Devil is a term uh, properly used only of Satan. Let me give you um, an illustration from the Wycliffe Bible commentary that describes demons as evil intelligences who seek to gain control of human beings as media of expression. The human life apparently open to uh, influence at this level of demonic activity. Uh, Satan and his minions wants to do and say things through human agents because they find it very difficult to, do, to, to be able to speak. They cannot speak unless they have control of, of a human voice box. Demon possession was very common in Jesus' day and was distinguished from Insanity. Uh, in places where evil powers are recognised and worshipped, it's still a common problem. Just ask any of our missionaries who serve in parts of the world uh, where witchcraft is practised, where occult is to the fore, and maybe even in our own society, in our own country, we need to come back and understand how Satan and his minions actually influence us. I remember some months ago, when we again saw at the festival time last year uh, the screw tape letters. Um, given an insight just to how the enemy works behind the scenes and in people's lives to influence our world. Paul tells Timothy that demons actually have the ability to influence what people believe and that in the latter days will seek to lead even true believers away from true biblical doctrine and to put their trust in teaching that does not have power to save simply because it is not a continuation of this authoritative teaching of Jesus and here we see the devil that through one of his demons has this man bound notice that Jesus doesn't have to go looking for this the authority that Jesus has the power of the anointing of the spirit flushes out the presence of the demon who instantly recognizes Jesus for who he is now of course the demon or even the devil himself is no match for the son of God We saw that a couple of weeks back when we studied the temptation of Jesus during his 40-day fast in the wilderness. Can I say to you here and now that the greatest power that Satan has available to him today is the power of the lie or the power of deception. When Jesus died on the cross and descended into that experience of being dead for three days and came back to life, he destroyed the power of Satan. He destroyed the power of the devil. And today, the only real power that Satan has available to him is to somehow convince us deceptively, through a lie, through untruths, that he has the ability to manipulate and to control. Let me explain A little bit what i mean about that i've known some christians at times to appear or it certainly does on the surface of their lives to appear more in the devil's ability to oppress them than they do in god's ability to free them some years ago jeanette uh, my wife and i uh, went to a part of the world where witchcraft and the occult was very very prevalent and we went there to visit with some friends who had gone through bible college with us And from the very moment we arrived in our friend's house, um, the woman particularly just went on and on and on about how they lived in this oppressive area where the occult was prevalent and and devil worship was right there to the fore and their marriage was under threat and their kids were unhealthy. and, And it was just, and for several hours we listened to this stuff. And, and I can, from experience, I can only tell you, I was beginning to feel incredibly oppressed and down. And the situation did not alter until I reminded ourselves and our friends about the position and the status that we have in Jesus Christ. And when we began to speak about the authority of Jesus over his world, the oppression lifted and the conversation actually became much, much healthier. And there was a freedom and a liberty there. Whenever we feel the enemy would press in against us, look at Jesus, focus on him. Remember what it is that he's done to set us free from the oppressor. Let's have a brief look at the biblical understanding of evil spirits as shown here in this passage. Well, first of all, demons believe in God. Then, you know, James tells us that there is one God and his readers believe that. Good, he says, even the demons believe that and they shudder. I I just love that expression, that the demons believe in God, but they tremble. Isn't that good to know that God's got one up in Satan so that he's actually afraid of him? Come on, Christians, be excited. Satan trembles. Devils fear and fly, the hymn writer says, at the mighty name of Jesus. We're also told in Scripture that Demons can be resisted by children of God. Hey, this gets even better. Not only can God stand against them, but we as children of God can stand against the power of Satan. The Apostle John says that every child of God has power available to overcome evil. In 1 John 4 and 4, You dear children are from God and have overcome them, that is the evil spirits of the world order, because the one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. Who's the one who is in us? No less than the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is greater than any evil influence in the world. Um, Some years ago, a woman that I knew was being plagued by a poltergeist. And she says, it's so frightening in my house, you know, like ornaments get thrown across the sitting room sometimes. And that could be pretty scary, I guess. But then I reminded myself that I actually have the physical ability to throw ornaments across the sitting room as well. So, hey, the devil's not so cool after all. And when we prayed into that situation and reminded the enemy that he does not have the ability to create out of nothing and to provide salvation for the souls of lost sinners, the devil's power was lost and the woman in her house was free. Peter says, resist him and you will not succumb to his influence. Folks, this is really, really important stuff. In 1 Peter 5, verses 8 9, Peter says, be self-controlled and alert. The enemy, your, your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Resist him. Standing firm in the faith because you know that your brothers throughout the world are undergoing the same kinds of sufferings. Oh, that you and I would realize this. That the Lord Jesus came to give us authority over sin and to release the power of Satan from our lives. Let's read through that passage together as it appears on the screen. Romans 6, verses 10 through 14. The death Christ died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. In the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. Do not offer the parts of your body to sin as instruments of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and offer the parts of your body to Him as instruments of righteousness. For sin shall not be your master, because you are not under law, but under grace. Is that just theory? Wouldn't it be cruel of God to put that in His Word if we can't not only believe it, but trust on it and act on it? It's not just theory, it's reality for every child of God. Whatever area of your life you feel manipulated by the evil one, whether it's a habit, whether it's a, a, a perpetual sin, whether it's a, to something you've been trying for years and years and struggling to defend off in your own strength, tonight you can know the liberating freedom of Jesus as he sets you free from that habitual sin. I really believe that. I believe that with my whole heart, that God can set us free. If not, he's cruel in his word to tell us otherwise. The demon, in Luke's account, recognizes who Jesus is. Jesus silences him. In verse 41, we see the same pattern repeated when other demonized people are brought to Jesus. Jesus forbids them to speak. Now, the most obvious reason, as most commentators agree, is that Jesus doesn't want his Messiahship to be made publicly known at this time in his earthly ministry. And I would completely concur with that, with that opinion. But I think there's another reason and maybe for us personally, it's even a more important reason. Because, you know, Jesus didn't come to earth to be recognized by the devil. Jesus came to be earth to be recognized by you. As the only Savior, the Son of God, the one who is to be Lord of your life. He doesn't want demons to cry out, you're the Christ, the Son of the living God. He wants you to cry out, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, my Savior, and my Lord. What's the present day reality of Jesus' power and authority? Let me reiterate whatever influences the devil may have over you, the power of Jesus can set you free. And then, thirdly and finally, let's look at Jesus' authority over disease. Verses 38 through 40. Have you ever wondered what Dr. Luke's bedside manner would have been like? I don't know whether he's um, a general practitioner or whether he's working in a... No, he's not working in a hospital because they didn't have them then, did they? But he is a medical doctor. And I know that there's lots of doctors in the place tonight, lots of trainee medics. So I'm going to be very, very careful about what I say. But unless it's just me, Norman and Marion, I've noticed with some people in the medical profession... They can be just a little bit matter of fact. i the only person who's ever noticed that. You know, as the person who's suffering, I want much, much more of an explanation about what's wrong with me than sometimes the doctor is prepared to give me. They can be a little bit abrupt. Well, at least the ones I know. It'll have to come off. We'll soon whip it out. Flu? It's just a cold. Next time you have something like a... See a nurse. A serious condition. See you in here all the time. Next! No, that's, that's unkind. Sorry. I, I. But Luke's bedside manner. Do you notice just how succinct he is? Here we've got the situation that is actually probably unto death. Simon's mother-in-law is sick of a fever. And without the, the medical abilities that we have today in our modern world, this woman's life could very easily have been threatened. And Luke says, basically, well, Jesus healed her. Jesus healed sick Simon's sick mother-in-law. And I think most of us actually want a more detailed explanation of what's going on here. But Luke, in this matter-of-fact, manner simply says he that is jesus bend over her that is simon's mother-in-law rebuked the fever and it left her so the word says and you and i immediately want a bigger explanation for it the only one available to us in scripture is found in matthew 8 and verse 17 where matthew not a doctor but a tax collector and i'm definitely not going to say anything about tax collectors But writing to a mainly Jewish readership explains that Jesus did this in the context of Old Testament prophecy fulfillment. He says this was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah. He took up our infirmities and carried our diseases. Scripture says nothing more about it, so neither am I. But this miracle confirms Jesus' authority. And his power. Luke, writing for his Gentile friend Theophilus, simply records the facts. And allows the miracle itself to confirm Jesus' power and authority. And it was a great victory. Notice that out of gratitude, Simon's mother-in-law gets up and serves. That's all scripture says about it. So the question comes up in our mind: Does Jesus still heal the diseases today? Well, of course he does, in various ways and in various forms, according to his perfect will, and by whatever means he chooses, or not. More importantly, Jesus heals the diseases of the human heart. Only the one who is receptive to Jesus will experience his healing touch of the heart. Others may well experience his healing touch physically or psychologically. But the greatest need that you and I have is for spiritual healing. And some of you are already saying, "Backtrack a little bit there. I just want to hear a little bit more about does that Jesus still heal today? I don't have time to give you testimony about Yes, I know that from personal experience, both having been physically and, and emotionally healed at times in my own life, and also seen it as the result of laying on hands of others and praying for them. Yes, Jesus does still do that stuff today, and he always has a purpose and a reason for doing it. But there's a greater thing that Jesus is actually about here in this story, and you and I need to focus on that rather than on the spectacular or the miraculous. Because in conclusion, I want to say that Jesus has this astounding sense of direction. All this healing and exorcisms create quite a stir, and the crowds seek Jesus out and ask him to stay around. Now, what an opportunity, what an exciting prospect this would be for the preacher or the pastor or the missionary who doesn't actually hear the voice of God prompting them day by day. Isn't this exciting? It's such a different reception from the Nazareth crowd. But Jesus never plays to the crowd, whether they're criticizing him or praising him. Jesus is not a crowd-driven person. He has an agenda and a timetable that is so different to popular opinion. How can Jesus be so disciplined and so sure That it is time to move on such great opportunity Lord they're bringing lots of people to you heal them deliver them free them speak to them and he says no I have to move on notice at the beginning of verse 42 that we're told that at daybreak Jesus went out to a solitary place now was that simply to get away from the demands of ministry and to chill out a little bit no Mark, in his account of this story, tells us that Jesus got up very early in the morning and went out of the house to this solitary place with the sole purpose of praying. And the direction and purpose of Jesus' life, we can see in that, was governed by his open lines of communication with his Father. The Father had sent him to preach good news to the poor. And as a result of the preaching of that word, see all the other manifestations of the works following the preaching. And Jesus, still seeing that that mandate was active for him, went out to do what God wanted him to do. God wanted to get this powerful message out to lost people. And you know, at this time, Jesus was the only person proclaiming it. Now, God has millions of people across his world placed strategically to get the same authentic, powerful message out. As I close, have you ever thought that actually maybe every man, woman and child in the world today, however many billion of them there are, actually has a divine right to hear the good news that Jesus can save them through his life? And that being the case, if you're a child of God, you are strategically placed in your family, in your workplace, in your place of education, in your street, in your flat, wherever. Strategically placed to get that same powerful message out that God wants to save lost people. This is a powerful message, the only means whereby God saves sinners. Let us pray.